I don't know if you've heard about Boxing Day. Who's heard about Boxing Day? Oh, wow, we have a very internationalist uh, group here. It's observed in Canada and I think uh, South Africa and the uh, United Kingdom. And it, apparently it referred to uh, the practice of boxing up gifts for your like milkman and service people back in the day in England, kind of like, you know, giving them a uh, a tip for the new year, uh, but traditions degrade, and now apparently Boxing Day refers to people boxing up their excess Christmas gifts and returning them for a, a refund, you know, nothing like consumerism. Um, but it's also um, more historically, it's uh, the day after Christmas is St. Stephen's Day. So December 26th is celebrated in the church calendar for those who observe the church calendar as St. Stephen's Day. And here's where I think it gets more relevant to the times that we're in. So I think the church had an intuition that after a holiday like um, Christmas, which is so you know, naturally and properly kid-friendly, we needed to sober up a little and understand what Jesus coming into the world was actually up to. So enter St. Stephen who earned his day by getting stoned uh, to death that is. Stephen is known for getting stoned to death. He's the first uh, Christian martyr, in a sense, after Jesus. So as if you've been around for a while, you know that we're fans of Rene Girard, who studied ancient myths and was a uh, lit credit at uh, Stanford University before he died a few years ago. Um, and he's studying the ancient myth. He says that the oldest means of restraining violence uh, in, the, in the human population is an unconscious crowd mechanism, actually, called scapegoating. And he did a lot of work, he and others, to kind of uh, describe what the scapegoating mechanism was and how it worked. But the, the essence of it is that intense rivalries naturally in the human population fuel tit-for-tat uh, escalations. We're having one of those with Russia right now. Uh, as these kind of conflicts multiply, the group's uh, viability is threatened. And so what happens, kind of almost magically, but certainly unconsciously, is that accusations focus eventually on a single member of the group or possibly a, a single group within the group, smaller group, and the all against all, multiplying you know, conflicts, morphs into an all against one. And there's a stoning, there's a lynching, there's an expulsion, and this almost magically resolves the tensions that have been running wild through the group, and it introduces a peace, a period of relative and temporary peace until the next scapegoating event is necessary. So authoritarian leaders and demagogues, and I want to be dictators, get their start always by manipulating a crowd's unconscious tendency, it's just, it's just born into us to resolve tension through this mechanism, scapegoating. Um, leaders like this are always bullies, they're accusing one group after another until the mob finally organizes, usually against one of those groups, and there's an escape, a scapegoating uh, attempt. When a national leader claims power by turning crowds against the press and Muslims and immigrants and other groups, you know the society is entering a scapegoating crisis. And we are in the process of entering the unfolding of some kind of scapegoating crisis. We don't know if it's going to work. We don't know how it's going to play out. But the, the signs are definitely there. And because it's an unconscious mechanism, this is a key to understanding scapegoating. 
It's the, those who are participating in scapegoating, by and large, are doing so unconsciously. This is why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It, it breeds in ignorance, and there's a kind of a crowd hypnotic effect so that people are doing this unconsciously, which means it only loses power in a society as it is exposed. So the extent to which we're aware of this mechanism is the extent to which we can not cooperate it with it and be part of exposing it. So Stephen Stoning in Acts chapter 6 and 7, and if you've got a smartphone with you want to pull up the, the text, um, look, uh, start with Acts chapter 6. It uh, covers two chapters in the book of Acts, which is the uh, companion to the gospel of Luke and is the story of the spread of the gospel after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's like the acts of the church or the acts of the spirit. Um, Stephen Stoning is a primer in scapegoat dynamics. It's very, it's very detailed and it, and it patterns what experts in scapegoat theory have identified through other means as the unfolding of the scapegoating crisis. So Stephen in Acts chapter 6 in the early verses emerges, you can see, in the context of a rivalry-fueled um, growing tensions experience uh, in Jerusalem. This is always the petri dish for scapegoating. It always begins with a society in a, in a period of crisis, of growing tensions, partisanship, conflict. Uh, now during those days, I'm reading from the text itself in Acts, Acts chapter 6, first few verses. During those days when the disciples were increasing in number, so this is just the beginning of the early church, right after the death and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit, things are starting to take off. The Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. This was an intra-church problem. So the early church, the first generation of Christians were Jewish followers of Jesus. And they had two main factions in that group. There were the Aramaic-speaking Jews. Aramaic was like a derivative of Hebrew. So they were referred to as the Hebrews. And the Greek-speaking or Hellenized Jews. Hellenist just means a Greek-speaking person. So you had one ethnicity, Jew, but you had two cultures and you had big um, contentions whenever you have multiple cultures. So reading on, Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So he was like getting notoriety and attention. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia. So just note, um, Christianity did not start in, um, well, let's say it didn't start in Livonia. It started, it was an Eastern religion, and it started among people, what we would describe today as people of color. Uh, the Cyrenians were North Africans, as a matter of fact. And they stood up and argued with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So this is like a Jewish dispute among Jews who are coming from different factions and groups. 
And among the Greek-speaking Jews, there were several subgroups that were just referenced, the Cyrenians, the people from different areas. There are four mentioned. So you can imagine that you've got the two basic um, you know, groups of Jews and there's tensions between those two big groups but then each of those groups has their subgroups and there's tensions within them. So it's a, it's a situation of increasing conflict. But as so often happens, notice that these subgroups are united by their turning against Stephen. This is what scapegoating does. It unites a group by turning its attention against some enemy. Um, and Stephen is just another Jewish Christian. He's a Jewish, Jewish believer. He's another Jew. He wasn't even identified as a Christian at that time. So these multiplying tensions are setting the stage for the scapegoating. We see that unfold in the following verses. This is 11 through 14 if you're reading along on your phones. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, they being the group from the synagogue of the freedmen and those different ethnic groups of Jews who were mentioned, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed down to us. This despite a fact, the, the, the fact that Jesus said, you know, not one, you know, iota of the law will be, will be changed until all is fulfilled. So if multiplying conflicts is the breeding ground for scapegoating, then this contagion of accusation that we see unfolding is uh, the sign that the mechanism itself is advancing. It's, it's being triggered. It's being catalyzed. It's unfolding. This can happen over a process of hours, days, weeks, months, years. It just depends what scale we're looking at. So first, traditionally, characteristically, a behind-the-scenes group has an axe to grind. This, this begins with a behind-the-scenes group. They're not making any of their charges public, but they've got an axe to grind, and then they get someone in the group to surface the accusations more openly, and then the accusations eventually make their way to the elites, to the elders and scribes, in this case, until the accused is brought before some kind of investigative committee. So this is essentially the first century version of the House Un-American Activities uh, Committee, which, you know, maybe, maybe the Saunders would remember that, you know, from the, from the 1950s and the McCarthy era. So, and, and scapegoats are always, they're always accused of something unpatriotic. I mean, this is, this is just classic. It has to be unpatriotic. And in the Jewish context, it was also presented as unpatriotic. This is, you know, charges against Moses, the law, our way of life, and all that sort of thing. All, uh, I think this is verse 15. All who sat in the council looked intently at him, at Stephen, who's been brought before them. They're staring at him now. It's a bad sign. Um, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they're staring, glaring, and he's kind of like, something's happening that's like transcendent on Stephen. Notice the stare. So th this, is, this is the intense scrutiny 
that people come under when they're being scapegoated. So, you know, members of a targeted minority understand what scrutiny is by experience. When a crowd stares at you, it, it's never good. And, you know, the black man walking with a white woman through a white crowd knows this. Uh, the trans person going to a public restroom in the wrong setting knows this. The, the woman wearing a hijab on the subway, the gay couple holding hands in public understand what that scrutiny is like and it's never, it's never a good sign. So things are getting quite dangerous for Stephen at this point because there's a powerful group of people and they're staring intently at him. It's a sign that things are intensifying. Of course, um, this is probably, you know, Stephen is part of the Jesus movement which came to birth under uh, negative attention. So from the beginning it had negative attention surrounding it. And so the members of the early Jesus movement were used to this. This was happening. But Stephen can't like slip away from the crowd this time because it's, it's organizing. It's coming together and, and this, this thing is going to play out. And so he kind of understands he doesn't have anything to lose right now. So he makes a very bold move. He gives a speech. And he gives the longest speech that is recorded in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is primarily about the apostle Paul. And it says that Paul was speaking one time and a young man was sitting in an upper floor window and he fell asleep and he fell down and he died when Paul was speaking. But Stephen's speech is longer than any even that Paul has recorded in the book of Acts. This is a very, now, you know, you might want to say, if you knew that your end was near, you might, and you, you might make a very long speech, right? I mean, there's reasons for, for keeping the speech long, but it's a very, very bold speech. You don't have time to read the, the speech. It essentially takes up uh, Acts chapter 7. You can take a look at it if you want to, but the heart of Christian discipleship is this. It's, it's simply bearing witness. It's speaking up. Um, and the risks that are attached to being a disciple of Jesus are always the speaking up risks, whatever those might be. So Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, I'll just summarize it for you. It's essentially, it's an object lesson in how religious people catch the scapegoating fever and get pulled into the scapegoating process. And it's, it's particularly... Um, ironic and, 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 and it doesn't fit in the Jewish context because the Jewish God is the God, he's known as the God who is always on the side of the victim. So this is the theme of, of Stephen's speech. He's like, we're going against our own tradition. And he, he points out that the, the heroes of old, he, he, he spends time on Joseph, he spends time on Moses and the prophet. And he says, these are all people who in their time were driven out, were experienced a kind of scapegoating by their own people. But God, the God of this people was our people, is on their side. Because this God is always with the victims. But the rest of us, he's saying, often participate in the scapegoating rather than exposing it. So he's an insider in the Jewish community providing this insider critique of the Jewish community on the grounds that this is not in keeping with our truest traditions. 
And this is just classic. In, in, in his, uh, I'm reading The Ascent of uh, Hitler, um, a new biography of Hitler, but his rise to power, 1936, I think it was, Hitler, who despised Christianity. I mean, he despised Christianity. He met with a cardinal of the church to say, um, nationalism, his movement, and religion won't survive without the other. We need each other. So he's, he's kind of looking for like some, some allies in his rise to power. He's trying to get the church to kind of come on board with him because he's against the Bolsheviks, the Russians, and the Soviets, and all that. Um, and despite a lot of early resistance in the church to the rise of Hitler, eventually the vast majority of Christians accommodated to Hitler's program, supported Hitler's program. So this is, this is just true everywhere. It's true in Hitler's Germany. It's true in Mussolini's Italy. It's true in our own American scapegoating experience. And we experienced, you know, scapegoating of different people of color, African Americans, you know, Native Americans, the Japanese during World War II, uh, Jews, Catholics. During the McCarthy era of the 1950s, it wasn't a Muslim registry. It was a blacklist of communist sympathizers. I, I went to school with a guy whose father was on the blacklist, Ernie Harburg. He owned the, the Del Rio down, <laughs> downtown, and his father was on the blacklist. His father uh, was the lyricist who, who wrote the lyrics to Brother Can You Spare a Dime? He was blacklisted. He couldn't get a job for many years because he came under scrutiny by Joe McCarthy's um, group. This was supported. This whole work was supported by Billy Graham, who was on the rise at this time. And other religious leaders, Protestant and Catholic, were all kind of going with the program of McCarthy for the longest time. There's nothing new about this. This is just the way it works. It's business as usual when it comes to scapegoating. So, and this is like the great divide in the Bible in religion. It's like religion at its worst gets pulled into the scapegoating mom and actually fuels the scapegoating mom or goes along with the scapegoating mom. But religion at its best always stands with the victims, the targeted people, doesn't go along with the scapegoating mom. If you're looking for like a dividing line of religion in the Bible, this is the dividing line. So reading on, we're, we're now at the, we're now at the, the event. When they heard these things, this long speech, which was a little bit pointed, <laughs> they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, something, something was going on in the look on his face. They were staring. He was like getting kind of woo, you know. <laughs> filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So th this is so important in Acts because it's the introduction of Saul, of Tarsus, who became Paul. And Paul is like the, the main dog in, in the book of Acts. And so this, this, this dramatic event, part of what it's doing is introducing us to Saul. 
While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So he's imitating Jesus in, in, in what's happening here. Then he knelt down. Well, he knelt down because he was, you know, getting stone after stone. He kind of fell to his knees as happens. And he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Again, he's imitating Jesus who was scapegoated. When he had said this, he died. In, in the Greek, it's actually he fell asleep um, because he's going to wake again. You know, if you're asleep, you can wake up. And this is the inference here. So, happy Boxing Day, everybody. <laughs> you know? Happy Christmas Day after Christmas. No wonder we don't pay attention to St. Stephen's Day. Come on, kiddies. Let's talk about it. <laughs> baby Jesus. And <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so, when a scapegoating crisis develops, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the takeaway. When, when, when the scapegoating thing is happening in a society, what we need to be is filled with the Spirit. So think about it. The scapegoating mob is always in a kind of a hypnotic bubble. They, they, they've, they've, been, they've been drinking some Kool-Aid. There's this something that's working in the crowd that's affecting them. They're not aware of it. They're blind to what's going on. So outrage is not an adequate counter to this mob spirit. You know, passing memes to our like-minded Facebook friends is not an adequate response when there's a scapegoating crisis. We need to be filled with the spirit to see what Jesus is up to. That's what the filling of the spirit did for Stephen. He was filled with the spirit so that he could see Jesus. It was all like one thing. Let's just read that part again. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, that's like the honor of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So what did Stephen see? It was repeated for us. He saw Jesus standing, not sitting at the right, right hand of God. This would have gotten people's attention because the, the normal locution, the normal phrase where you hear at the right hand of God is sitting at the right hand of God, right? In the Apostles' Creed, it's, what is it? Uh, um, he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. That's repeated in churches all over the world all the time. It comes from the Bible whenever there's the Messiah at the right hand of God or some, you know, the king at the right hand of God. He's always sitting at the right hand of God. Sitting is the, is the place of honor at the right hand of God. When the Queen of England is sitting on her throne and she, you know, she doesn't stand to receive the visitors, you know. When the Prime Minister comes in to, who is just elected and the Queen is sitting on the throne and, and, you know, she stays seated. And the Prime Minister comes up and he, you know, does, does his obeisance or whatever. She doesn't stand to receive the visitors. She retains her position of honor. But if she does stand when the visitor arrives, that's like a huge um, like sign of honor. The queen is standing for you when you come in. The queen on her throne is standing for you when you come into the... If that should happen to you, you should feel very blessed. You should feel like, oh, okay, I've made it. I think I might make it on the 
New York Times uh, most important people of the past year list if that happens. So just picture this. Jesus, who was scapegoated himself like recently, is honoring Stephen by standing as Stephen is being dishonored by the mob. And what's even like gutsier is Stephen points this out. So, so he sees it, right, in the spirit, and then it says, look, and then he says it. And, and you know, we naturally read that as like, isn't Jesus awesome? He's, you know, but he, the fact that Stephen points him out as standing is a reflection of, on Stephen. He's saying, the Messiah is honoring me right now when he's uh, recording that he is, sees him standing. It's like, you all feel like God is on your side. Well, he's on my side. <laughs> so it's a claim here that Stephen is making. This is, this is super important, I think. Um, because during a developing scapegoating crisis, those being targeted need allies, right? Um, Stephen could have used some friends just about then. <laughs> he could have used some allies. He didn't have any allies in that crowd. So who are allies? Allies usually are people who enjoy whatever privilege the crowd is operating from. So the same ethnicity, the same social standing, same cla you know, class as the mob. Those are the people who are good candidates to be, to be allies to Stephen. You know, Stephen's mother is not a good, you know, candidate to be his ally, but someone who's like known in the group. So, oh, I just saw this story. I, I, I went to Henry Ford um, High School in Detroit, and um, I'm walking down uh, with, with two um, high school young women. It was me and the two girls. And we're walking across, we're walking across um, the, the field towards Henry Ford, and there was a pitcher woods along the side, this woods area, uh, just outside of Henry Ford ground there in the park. And there had been like rumors circulating that there had been some, there was a gang in Pitcher Woods and there had been some rapes and it was like bad news going on there. And I'm walking there with these two girls and, and it's like, you know, evening, dusk. And a group of like 13, 14, looked to me like 700, young men started walking toward us, out of the woods, toward the, the asphalt path that we were walking on. And, and I'm like, oh shit, I mean like, <laughs> Because, you know, like, this is, this is like 1968 or whatever, and I'm the guy, and so I'm like, yeah, I'm supposed to be the man, and I've got to protect the girls and all this, you know, BS, and, and I'm feeling all this pressure, and this is going to be bad, and, and, and they get closer and closer, you know, there's no way to, the angles and all that kind of stuff. And just as they start coming around us, kind of jostling us, there's a voice out of the group that says, hold up, it's Wilson. And it turned out to be Halleck, who was the leader of the gang, and he was on the cross-country team, and I was the captain of the cross-country team. He was a powerful ally at that moment, and at that point, I was like, I didn't care that Halleck was part of a gang that was doing <laughs> bad things in Pitcher Woods. I was just glad that Halleck was on my side, you know? And it made me feel pretty darn important with those girls, too. So it was like a win-win for, for both of us. I never talked to Halleck about that afterwards, but that's what Stephen needed. He needed an ally like, that, ally like that who was part of 
the group. Saul could have been that ally, right? Saul could have been that ally. He was a Hellenized Jew. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. He was born in, in Tarsus in, in modern-day Syria. And he had privilege. He was a, he was a rising Pharisee. He, he, was, a, he was like the, the hot commodity among the, um, among the Greek-speaking Jewish population, religious Jewish population. He would have been a perfect ally for Stephen, but he wasn't there yet. He wasn't ready to be an ally. In fact, he was on the other side of things. He might have been part of that group that was doing the original, like, spreading of the accusations. He may have been part of that synagogue of the free, freedmen. So later in the book of Acts, he does uh, use his religious privilege and his ethnic privilege to stand up for targeted people and he eventually took some big hits for them too. Um, so this is introducing the concept of, of an ally in a way. So there's two ways to be an ally. One is a kind of a condescending way. I'm a powerful person and I'm going to protect you poor vulnerable minority group. This is like the classic, you know, white liberal <laughs> approach to being an ally. Well, the, the thing is, that just perpetuates the dishonoring that the targeted group is experiencing from the scapegoating mob. It's just a different form. It's a better form. It's a different form, though, of dishonoring. It's like, I have the power. I'm going to protect you. The other way to be an ally is to have this spiritual vision that Stephen is having. To see the Son of Man honoring the targeted group. So in imitation of Jesus, you stand up too to honor the target. You're imitating Jesus. And this takes a spiritual vision. This is not a natural thing for groups to do. Human beings, we're groupish more than we're selfish. We identify with our groups. We absorb the, the ethos of our group and we're not even aware of it. We are not going to do this without a spiritual vision. And this is what Stephen is having. He sees the Son of Man standing to honor him as the scapegoated person. So it's really important for allies to know that there is a huge difference between pity, you know, you poor vulnerable pit, you know, person. We want pity from God. We don't want pity from other people because that puts the other people above us. We don't like that feeling. The huge difference between pity and honor. And the targeted group will always know the difference. If you've ever been like subjected to pity, you know like, oh yeah, it's worse than condemnation. It's better than condemnation, but it sure doesn't feel very good to be on the other end of pity. Honor is much better. So always the, our instinct in the privileged group as an ally is to see ourselves as a protector, but that places us above the targeted group. And it takes a spiritual vision to change you. It takes the Holy Spirit to change you, to see something else and imitate that instead. So you're not seeing yourself as the solution. You're seeing, you're seeing Jesus standing to honor his comrade, you know, those who are like him, who have been targeted like him, and he feels for them, and he's in solidarity with them, and he's honoring them. You see the Son of Man standing to honor the targeted group and, and you will want to honor them, to stand with them, not over them in your protective mode. 
So I think in the days ahead, we're going to learn how to do this. Um, we're going to have the opportunity to learn how to do this. Uh, as various groups are already being targeted, you know, the press, Muslims, immigrants, people of color, LGBT community in different ways, different states. We will learn how to stand with each other. And there will be great power in standing with each other. If we're not personally targeted, we'll be, learn how to stand with those who are. And there will, be, there, there will be God in that for us. But as we do, it's important to realize that this is, um, it's playing out in the political sphere now. And that's why it has so much of our attention. Um, but we're not to be inspired or moved by a political spirit. Um, I'm not saying that to discourage anyone from political action. In fact, I think, great, the more the merrier. I hope we have like a really light crowd for January 21st and that, you know, it'll be mainly male, you know. <laughs> and it's, you know, go to, the, go to the March on Washington or, you know, get involved in political activity. More people should be running for something. Um, you know, get a small group of people together, meet monthly and have dinner and talk about, you know, hey, what are we learning? What can we do to, to respond to this at the political level? That's all great. That's good. It's, 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 it's necessary, but it's not su sufficient. Um, this is not fundamentally a political process. This process is as old as the hills. It goes back to Cain and his kin, blaming his troubles on Abel and getting rid of Abel to found a society as a scapegoating enterprise. That's what that text is saying. This whole foundation of the world is based on this scapegoating mechanism. So we're, we're, we're in over our heads when we're facing something like this. So that means when we're over our heads, we're in the realm of the spirit now. We're in the zone of the spirit. Uh, that's the phrase to let you know it's time to enter the realm of the spirit. It's when you say, I'm over my head. Um, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, the uh, biography that, that has uh, a report directly from King, it's famous uh, uh, part in his life, you know, he kind of got pulled in to being a leader in the civil rights movement because he was a first-time pastor of a, of a church and, and uh, the, the civil rights movement that was happening there in Birmingham. He uh, needed, a place to, needed a place to start meeting. And, and they asked him and he felt bad about saying no and he said, okay. And I think uh, he ended up kind of draw, getting drawn into the, being a civil rights leader through that accidental kind of event. And then it starts kind of like spinning out of control, and, it, and it's big now. And, and he started, he's at the phase where he's got notoriety, and his, he's got a home phone number, and people are calling that home phone number, and they're threatening his wife and his kids with firebombing his house, and crowds are coming out outside of his, uh, outside of his home. It's bad. And he's like, I did not sign up for this. And he has this moment, it's like midnight at a kitchen table, he's having a cup, cup of coffee, and, he, and he's now, you know, uh, King was like a, uh, he was like an intellectual, and he came to faith, and he came into the pastorate um, as a theologian, as he went to Union Theological Seminary, I think, and he studied under some really highbrow people, his dad was a, a, a prominent pastor in Atlanta, and, and he didn't like come in as a Pentecostal, he came in as an intellectual. And, but now he has a Pentecostal moment. He's at the kitchen table. He's now talking to God direct. You know, he's not, it's not erudite. It's, it's direct. People are looking to me as a leader, and I don't know what to do. 
I'm at the end of my powers. I've got nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. You know, for a young man to take on that mantle of leadership, man, he had a lot of confidence. He had a lot of secure sense of self. He had a strong family upbringing, as King did. And now he's having that moment where he said, I cannot face this alone. That's his over my head moment. And when, he's, when you're over your head, look up. <laughs> you know, when, you, when you're over your head, with things, everything is coming down on you, look up. That's what he's doing. He's facing and he's embracing <clears throat> his own human predicament. That's what Stephen was doing. You know, he's getting pummeled with rocks. You know. He knows it's the end. He's facing and embracing his vulnerability as a human being. His, the human predicament that we all share. He's over his head. And he looks up and that's when he sees the Son of Man standing to honor him. And that's, that vision is what gives him the strength to go on. And, and at that moment, that's when King, he's pouring out his heart, he's embracing his human uh, predicament, and for the first time he hears the voice. And the voice says, stand, Martin. Don't back down, Martin. I am with you, Martin. He hears his name, he hears the voice, he hears the voice say, stand, and I am with you. And that's what he needed. That, that's what he needed. And that's what powered the man to do what he did. So maybe that's like a lesson for us. Stephen, Martin Luther King, we're over our head. We look up. We see the Son of Man. And we're empowered by what we see. If we see him with us and honoring us and honoring those we care about. Okay, so um, let's... Uh, take a little. Can I get an amen from somebody? Yeah. Okay, thank you. I felt it in you, but I just felt like you needed a little help. Get it out, you know. Um, so maybe for our, our quiet reflection, we could just take some time, take a 30 seconds or so, just a little relaxed time um, to uh, I don't know, accept, embrace collect ourselves in our weakness, in our human predicament, just whatever that means for you, you know. Um, it might be you sit, you know, sit there and there's just thoughts swirling in your head. It's like, yeah, that's your human predicament. And you just offer that to God. Let me just, let's just start with that. And now I just invite you to, um, the reason this is in the text of scripture, it's for our encouragement. Um, 
And so I'd invite you to just, in a sense, lift up your heart and look to see what Stephen was seeing, which was the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, knowing that that standing was partly to honor Stephen himself. What, what, a, what a thing to see. So just imagine that, picture that in the context of all your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities and whatever makes up your human predicament. Lift up your heart. See what he saw. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So God, we pray as we, as we are aware of our, our needs, our vulnerabilities, um, we pray that you would open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. We pray that the Spirit would come to us. Uh, today, this, as we come into the time of communion and in the, the days and the weeks to come, we invite the Holy Spirit to come to us as the Spirit came to Stephen to open our eyes to see things that we cannot naturally see. We ask this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.